Hello, everyone. That was such a lovely, warm welcome. Thank you so much, and welcome to Planet Talks. My name is Sabra Lane, and sitting here with me is Christiana Figueres. She's the woman. Thank you. The former UN Executive Secretary for Climate Change. This is the woman who helped negotiate the Paris Agreement that we hear so much of these days. Now, we're going to have a little fireside chat for about 40 or 45 minutes, and then we're going to take questions from the floor, from you, for about 15 to 20 minutes. I want you to think about what kind of questions you'd like to ask in that segment, too, and I'd please ask you to refrain from making comments. We want to get through as many questions as we possibly can. So that's the Q&A clause, if you like. No comments. We want questions. Now, before we begin, I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional elders of the land on which we meet today, the Gano people. For yours is the oldest living culture on the planet. It is the bedrock of our foundation and a source of great pride. Welcome to Adelaide. Thank you. I'm quite excited. Just came in last night. Um, but before we start, could I also pay respects in a different way um, to Damon Gamow, who may or may not be. Are you in the audience yet? No, but he will be soon, um, because he, he will follow us on this stage, but he's also uh, the producer of this fantastic film, 2040, that I highly recommend. And out of his generosity, we got a lot of the footage, as was recognized there, but uh, an amazing Australian producer, so thanks to Damon. Now, we're here, Christiana, because you have just managed to put out a book, The Future that We, Future we Choose. Uh, and I should say that uh, originally it was planned that your co-author, Tom Karnak, was going to be here today. Unfortunately, he can't be, but we're still going to have a fantastic conversation. I started reading your book over the summer, and the version that I was given to review had a rather amazing paragraph right on the front cover here. And I'm going to read it for the audience. It started by saying it's chapter two of your book and it says, the first thing that hits you is the air. You no longer walk out of your front door and breathe fresh air. There is none. Instead, before opening doors and windows in the morning, you check your phone to see what the air quality monitor says. Now that was your scenario for 2050, but that was my scenario for 2020. Australia had an absolutely devastating summer of bushfires. How do you think that will change the climate change debate? Well, um, I must say I was uh, watching it in pain from afar. And um, I, I'm not sure how deeply the bushfires have seared into Australian soul. Uh, I hope that they have seared at least as deeply as the damage that was irreparably done. Um, for those of us who were watching outside, this was, as far as I'm concerned, the history of climate change should be written before the Australian bushfires and after the Australian bushfires. Because, as you say, we thought that we were going to be seeing those, the depth of that kind of damage 30 years from now, but all of a sudden, there we had it in current horrible, horrible news. 
Um, to say nothing of the fact, and this was not covered, the trauma that was experienced by those families who had to leave their homes at two and three o'clock uh, in the morning and seek shelter in water and in the ocean. I, I just, in addition, of course, to the billion animals burned to death, 3,000 homes, 34 people, um, 10 to 12 million acres, it is just unfathomable, unfathomable. And I really um, am hoping that that very stark warning here in Australia is going to lead to a tsunami of support for responsible climate legislation ASAP. I read a, a quote of yours given in recent weeks. You say that Australia is now the poster child, the example of irresponsible management and of undue care on climate change measures. Oh, did I already say that? <laughs> Maybe I really mean it. <laughs> what in particular do you think is irresponsible? Well, quite a few things. I think, first of all, it's irresponsible that in this country of such well-educated um, people that we are still in the throes of climate wars. I mean, that, that, let's start with that, right? Ten years. Um, and, and then, just to focus on the, uh, on the immediate, I, well, the list is actually long. How, how many pieces do I get of... Uh, let's, let's just start with um, the famous meeting and beating, okay? Uh, so for, uh, for the Prime Minister to say that Australia will meet and beat its, uh, its targets. I mean, here's the thing. Meeting and beating does rhyme with cheating. I agree. <laughs> But it's about the only thing they have in common, because either you meet and beat without cheating, or you cheat, in which case you do not meet and certainly don't beat. Oh. There is no way, sorry, let me just you know, get this out because I'm, this is my first day in Australia, I've got to get this out, it makes me so irate. Um, there is no way under any possible imagination stretch under even for Latin Americans, and we do have a lot of imagination, but there is no stretch of the imagination under which one could argue uh, with a serious face, unless it's a joke, that, um, that you can use credits from the Kyoto Protocol period into the Paris Agreement. I mean, if you're, if you're an athlete, you don't expect to take your score from the previous tournament into the one that you're just starting now. Because the Australian government is seriously considering using those Kyoto carryover credits. Well, they can't. Is it, is it, is it illegal for them to do that? Well, I mean, it's so illegal that there's not even... A, I, mean, I have a hard time understanding where on earth this idea came from. Of course it's illegal. Of course, there's one regime that has done its thing, it's finished, we're now into a second regime. 
since when do you take your scores from a previous tournament, a previous regime, and then apply them to the next? I mean, it's just inconceivable to have even come up with such a ridiculous idea. It's beyond illegal. It is ridiculous. Those credits were put in there, though, um, uh, during the Paris negotiations. What was the idea behind it? Because it, the idea wasn't... Which credits? So you're saying they're, they're a complete invention? No, no, no. The no, Kyoto no. Protocol, of course, yep. was there, yeah. Yep. But, but, you know, that regime is finished. Yep. Draw the line. It's sort of like taking, I don't know, you know, the Australian Open score and then taking it to Wimbledon and saying, I'm going to start my game with the score that I had in the Australian Open. No, you start the score anew. That, I mean, don't we get that? Is that so difficult? The government is looking at using, possibly. No, they can't. I mean, I mean... They can entertain themselves with the idea. Anyone can entertain themselves with ridiculous ideas, but this is just such a no way. Let's move on from that. Okay, we, let's we, get serious. Let's get serious. We're going to move on. You, you've written an, an opinion piece today saying that there are three points that Australia could act on now um, to get serious in this decade, because you say that this decade is the crucial and critical decade. You talk about Australia needing to be honest on the meeting and beating line, that it needs to engage in bipartisanship. And as someone who's watched this up close for the last 12 years, I think that's a mirage in the distance. I wonder how you think we can achieve bipartisanship to embrace, which is the third point, net zero emissions by 2050. So, um, there, there is no doubt that in order to protect humans, as well as all other life on this planet, there is no doubt that we have to be at zero net by 2050. Every single climate model tells us that. Furthermore, every single one of the climate models that take us to zero net by 2050, because there are many routes to it, okay, so let's understand that, that there is flexibility, and that's one of the things that I think Australia can look at, but there is flexibility on how to get there, but not on the long-term destination. We have all agreed it is now agreed by 195, and at the end of this year, it'll be 195 minus one, okay, but other than that, everyone has agreed zero net by 2050. Now. There are many paths to that, but every single one of the 186 paths that are out there as possible climate projections tells us that we have to start the descent of emissions this year. This year. It is 2020, isn't it? We've been talking about this for a long time. 2020, and we have to start the descent of emissions, and we need to be at one half the current emissions that we have by 2030. And then if we do that, then we open the door to quite a few possibilities that we have. But more interestingly, we open the door to the world that we saw on the screen. A very, very exciting world, certainly for Australia. Um, now, arguably, that is easier if you have bipartisan support, for sure. And I really do 
wonder at what point the wall of fire that was just about to swallow up any home started, stopped at the gate and said, excuse me, can you please tell me what political party you belong to the family here? I mean, the, the idea that climate change is actually a partisan issue is beyond my level of understanding because it... And, and it is odd, right? You, you have that in three countries. You have it in the United States, in Brazil, and in Australia. But most other countries actually kind of understand that the threats are to all human beings in a, in, independently of where you were born or you know, what your political allegiance is. It, it's to all of us. So where is there a possibility for bipartisan support? Well, let's look at the, the real issues. The issues definitely are jobs, okay? Very important, absolutely important. Fully agree that that has to be one of the very important factors that we need to, um, to consider. Now, those that argue that will tell you, well, there are 50,000 jobs in coal in Australia. Fair enough. And because jobs are so important, we should definitely not endanger the 650,000 jobs that are in the tourism industry. And, and we, know, we know that if these fires continue, and if global temperatures continue to increase, Australia will be left very, very sadly without a Great Barrier Reef, which is why many people come. Uh, and with the disastrous events that we have seen um, in, uh, with, with the bushfires that are also not exactly the best incentive for tourism. So if people don't come to see the beauties of Australia that are on land, nor what is underwater, yes, they're still beautiful cities, but they, on their own, they would have to compete with many other beautiful cities. You don't have the combination of underwater beauty, unland uniqueness, and beautiful cities in many other countries like you do in Australia. You have to have all three in order to protect those 650,000 um, uh, direct jobs from tourism. So that's point number one, protect jobs, absolutely. Second, has anybody noticed how much sun there is in Australia? Um, plus wind, plus uh, hydro down in, in Tasmania for sure. Uh, I mean, absolutely a blessed, blessed, blessed country with natural energy resources that haven't even begun to be exploited. And of course, if you then understand that you can exploit all of those resources, particularly if you upgrade the grid, if you connect everything, if you have enough battery storage, of which you already have uh, 100 megawatts going to 150 with the big battery, now you begin to see, honestly, there really is a path here. There's a path for job creation, for stimulating the economy, protecting, uh, protecting jobs, and increasing your participation, certainly greening up domestic, 
um, energy as well as substituting uh, coal in the export uh, balance sheet because you can export green ammonia, green hydrogen, your, uh, well, in addition to your, uh, to your tourism. So it, it's not like, it's not like there are no options in Australia. This is the thing. If you have a country that is really, really flat out against the wall because there are no options, okay, but that is not the case in Australia. Not the case. And so I would be much more interested in, instead of you know figuring out what the difference is between meeting, beating, and cheating, can we actually put our brains to work at what are the options and compare options because honestly, Australia will have several options. Let's put scenarios out there, let's identify the scenarios to get to half emissions by 2030, zero net by 2050, and then let's see which one of all of those options is going to be best for people and for all other life on, uh, in Australia and for the economy. And how fantastic, right? Let me put to you uh, some of the points that we're hearing politically, especially from the conservative side of politics, that Australia only contributes 1.3% of the world's emissions, therefore uh, we should make that kind of contribution to the emissions task. How do you so, respond? Well, so to, to that I respond, thank you for uttering my totally favourite, favourite argument. I totally love that argument. <laughs> What I think is fascinating about that argument is that I don't hear that argument coming from a hundred and something, maybe four or five countries around the world that have, are you ready for this number? 0.01% of emissions. I don't hear it from any of them. Because that's not what we're looking at, right? Those countries, mine included, but all of the Pacific Islands have each one 0.01% of emissions. And all these countries, certainly the Pacific Islands, certainly Costa Rica, is 100% on path to be on to zero net emissions by 2050, at the latest, most of them much sooner. The small islands going 100% renewable energy very quickly. Why are they doing this? They are doing it because of their very, very high vulnerability and because they realize that in order to protect themselves, they cannot solve or address climate change on their own. They actually have to role model responsibility, my favorite word here, they have to role model responsibility in order to be able to ask other countries to be equally responsible. Because the only way we're gonna address climate change is if we all do it together. So, if the Australian bushfires have shown us that Australia is one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change, not because of sea level as the small Pacific Islands, but because of heat and drought, then it only stands to reason that if you understand that it is a highly vulnerable country, that the potential damage has already gone way beyond everything that was foreseen, and that Australia alone cannot solve this, 
then you would think that one could then derive the conclusion, therefore, we need to be responsible so that we can ask everyone else to be responsible alongside us to support and, uh, and prevent the damage, to support us and prevent the damage and increase our resilience. If Australia does not do that, there is no moral standing to ask anyone else to do it. And the first ones hit are Australian citizens. Now, when you were given the job by the UN to take over negotiations to head towards Paris, that, it, that was after the disastrous Copenhagen talks. Uh, and at the time, you're quoted, you were quoted as saying you didn't think you'd get agreement in your lifetime. And you did. You managed to get agreement. Well, I'm pretty old by now. <laughs> <laughs> what was the state of affairs like when you took over? And given that, let's face it, many leaders were men, do you think that it would make more of a difference if, we, if there were female leaders in charge in negotiating, well, as we look towards Glasgow this year, will it, would it make much more of a difference if more women were at the table? International Women's Day. Yes, 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 to all those questions. And, um, and, and here's why. Um, several reasons for that. Um, the first is that although there are many men who also have these characteristics, it is in general women, not all, who tend to have much more of a long-term perspective, who turn, tend to be more collaborative, rather than hierarchical, who tend to be true listeners and listen to others. We have to listen to our kids. Um, and who tend, perhaps because of, our, of the role in reproduction, we just tend to be much more on when it comes to stewardship. Uh, that doesn't mean that, mean that men don't do it. It just means that on the whole, and it's always really irresponsible to generalize, but you get the picture, right, in general. So that's one reason. The other reason is that we are <coughs> statistically 50-50 population. And so it doesn't make any sense to have only one perspective sitting at the table and not being able to draw from 100% of the potential wisdom, all of which we need to address these issues. So yes, I definitely think that we need more women, certainly on climate, on finance, on energy, I mean, you name it, right? There's everything, everything. On everything we need uh, to get to 50-50 because that's who we are. As a human species, we're 50-50, so why should the tables look any different than who we are? What, what does success look like in Glasgow? That is not as easy a question as it might seem. Because um, in 2020, we have a very interesting geopolitical situation. We have the United States 
<clears throat> and we already know that the United States is not going to bring a new commitment. We're all crossing our fingers, our toes, and our hairs for Australia to bring a responsible commitment. Um, and there's a lot that can be done by you to press for that. Um, and we have no idea what Brazil is gonna do, but arguably also not. The rest of the countries will come, hopefully, with, uh, with a more responsible position. The reason why that is important is because, if you'll bear with me for a moment, I'm gonna go back to Paris and explain that what we did in Paris was to cement a structure that is going to, or actually not even a structure, guardrails, let me call it guardrails. We constructed guardrails that are going to accompany the transformation of the global economy over the next few decades until we get to net zero by 2050. That process of figuring out those guardrails was a multilateral process that required everyone to agree. When I say everyone, I mean 195 countries unanimously. Have you tried to get a unanimous decision out of your family? <laughs> so we got a unanimous decision from all of these countries for those guardrails. That is actually also legally binding. In addition to that, in parallel, what we did in Paris was to say, okay, we understand that those guardrails are actually going to take several decades and that at this point, no country can really honestly say how they're gonna get to 2050 by net zero. So let's mark the starting line. Everybody go home, figure out, talk to everyone, do your consultations cross-sectorally and come back and tell us what your starting line is. What is your first trench, if you look at it financially, or your first vintage, if you look at it as a vineyard? Um, what is your first vintage of efforts that you can contribute to the global effort? In the full understanding that that was only a first effort, a first collection, and that every five years, all countries need to come back with their second efforts. 2015 was when we adopted that, plus five, because it's every five years, is 2020 in Costa Rica and in Australia. So this year, all countries need to come back to the table and say, right, that was my starting line, and now here's where I'm gonna go for my second effort, because we have much better technologies that are much cheaper, 80, 90% cheaper than they used to be. Our finances are shifting, we understand our policies, um, plus, Social tolerance for irresponsibility is dwindling. Yay for that, let's talk about activism. Yeah. So every country is now supposed to come to this uh, table with their second vintage or their second efforts um, and that will tell us then how far or collectively how far are we going toward the zero net by 2050. That is what every country has to do. From a geopolitical point of view, that's going to be somewhat complicated because of the position of the United States and Brazil. Let's for just the time being in our heads send the positive energy that Australia is not in that list, okay? Because we have to send positive energy in that direction. But still, with the United States and Brazil, that's gonna be complicated. However, however, so it's not gonna be a universal step up, right? Because we already know that the US won't. However, here's the fascinating thing. If you step away from geopolitics and you actually look at the real economy, 
what the real economy is doing? The real economy is actually decarbonizing. Independently of the political drama and the political show and the staging, the actual fact is that the economy is decarbonizing. So I actually think that at COP26, we're gonna to have to make a major effort to put both of those realities side by side and say, here's the geopolitical drama, we understand, but here's the reality. Because actually, Sabra, my boss, the global atmosphere, what she really cares about is emissions. She doesn't really care about the political drama. She just wants to know how much junk are you sending up to me? That's it. So we have to be able to measure that piece and be able to report on that plus whatever else is coming down the pike. So two different realities. Let's talk about the book because you also talk about actions that people can take that you don't have to rely on governments doing what you think are the right things, that people have the power themselves to make a difference. You, you've got 10 points. I want to pick up on um, two of them. You talk, you've just talked about one, acts of civil disobedience. But I was also really intrigued that you talk about uh, not wanting to diss climate deniers, that people should try to understand why they say what they, what they say. Why, can you flesh, flesh out those two points? Um, on activism, should we talk about activism? Yeah, let's talk about activism. Uh, yay! <laughs> um, That's what so, keeps you positive, isn't it? Well, among many other things, yeah. yeah. Um, activism, I mean, how cool is it that we now have millions of young people on the streets reminding us and, and I mean, it's really cool, but it's also really sad that they're reminding us that we're the adults and that we're supposed to be acting like adults. Um, but anyway, having, ha having said that, uh, I think it is fantastic that they're taking to the streets. And what they're doing is, um, first of all, they're puncturing that uh, complacency bubble, right? Because so many people have been complacent or indifferent, and they're really reminding us there's no place for indifference anymore, no time for that. The second thing that they're doing is they're reducing social tolerance of irresponsibility um, to corporations, to companies, to cities, fantastic. What is really exciting about that civil disobedience is that if you look at the literature that has been studied about um, civil disobedience, you, uh, you see two things that are really critical. Number one, no real huge social, political, economic transformation has really ever occurred without civil disobedience on the streets. That's interesting. Secondly, that, um, that, that civil disobedience is most effective when it is those who are most affected who are on the streets. That's all also very interesting. And we all know that climate change is generationally unfair onto those uh, youngsters, and hence it is fantastic that they're on the streets. But, sorry, th three things. And the third thing that is really exciting is that every single disobedience movement in history, think about South Africa, think about civil rights in the United States, every suffragettes in the UK, every single big, big issue that has had civil disobedience 
only requires 3.5% of the population to actually tip the political scale. And we're almost there, right? It's not that you require 100%. So that's really interesting, which means everybody has to go support those kids. And finally, how cool is it that is mostly led by young women? Very cool. The other question that you asked was not just on activism, but also what to do with um, climate deniers. Um, so here's my honest answer about that. I used to spend time with these people and I no longer do. <laughs> because um, A, we're running out of time and I don't have time to you know, be having those conversations because mostly there are huge, deep, and high vested interests behind their opinions. Secondly, because if someone has determined because of their you know, vested interests or whatever, um, that they don't believe, believe in climate change, I honestly really can only laugh because climate is not a religion, it's not a myth, you know, it's not an ideology. I mean, we're all under climate change effects. And if you don't believe in gravity, you're certainly certainly allowed that opinion, but gravity is definitely holding you on, you know, on the face of this earth. So it doesn't matter if you don't believe in gravity, it's affecting you. It doesn't matter if you don't believe, don't believe in climate change, it's affecting you. So, you know, I mean, flat earthers still, still exist, and I just don't spend time there. What is more important is to understand that in any social transformation, again, there is a natural distribution curve that has always existed and that will always exist. And there always are about five, sometimes 10% of any population that are absolute deniers and you know, handbrakes and whatever, and it, it just will always be. Then there are five to 10% of the ones that are you know, the, the first ones to move, um, the ones that really understand what the change needs to be. Um, and those have already moved. On climate, what we're looking at now is the big bubble in the middle. And that's where it is really important for each one of you to not just do your thing on climate, and we can go into a short list of what you need to do, but also talk to your family, uh, family members, your friends, your community members, your religious groups, your non-religious groups, whoever, because we have to move that big bubble. And frankly, we have to move it now. Because we all have to be. Can I do my recipe now for what everyone needs to do? So here's my recipe. We have to be at one half global emissions by 2030, over the next 10 years, no matter what. So how do we do that? First, you go to Ms. Google. You put in carbon calculator and you will have a long list of carbon calculators that appear. Choose any one of a reputable, honest institution that you love and respect. There are many there. Go in there and figure out what your carbon footprint is. Quick question, who knows what their carbon footprint is right now? Okay, good, point, point taken, right? So we all know what our bank account is, usually, at least once a week we should all know what our carbon account is. 
because they are, in fact, the second is more important than the first. And so we should all figure out what is our carbon footprint, us individually, our family, our city, whatever. Um, and this exercise can be done if you're a company, if you're the CEO of a company, or the head of sustainability, or the head of unsustainability, you should do it even more. Um, so if you're a community leader, you know, a family, corporate, government, everybody, everybody, independently of what the level is of your control of, or influence, we have to know what our carbon footprint is. Then, do you remember when we were in second grade or first grade and we learned our multiplication tables? We all learned how to multiply times two. We all learned how to divide by two. So take your carbon footprint. Don't blame yourself. You know, we all start wherever we start. Doesn't matter. Just divide by two. And say, right, by 2030, that's where I'm going to be. And then the same carbon calculator will, you will get ideas there of where you can very quickly begin to reduce your emissions take the first, you know, two or three or four or five or ten easy low-hanging fruit and then make a plan to reduce in ten years. We tend to overestimate what we can do in the short term. What does your, you know, New Year's uh, wish list or commitment list look like, right? We hardly ever get to it. So we tend to overestimate what we can do in a year, but we totally underestimate what we can do in ten. And frankly, none of us, none of us can argue that we can't half our emissions over the next 10 years. Neither can any country, neither can any corporation, neither can any financial institution. It is completely doable. It's what you have in your head and how you approach this to make what may seem awkward, difficult, impossible, whatever adjective you choose. No, you have to decide that we're gonna make it possible. Because if we don't decide that we're gonna make it possible, it sure ain't gonna happen. So we have to decide. We're just gonna do it. Because frankly, we don't have any other option. So whether you're responsible for yourself, your family, your city, your community, your country, your corporation, whatever, divide by two. Make the plan, start executing. And by 2030, we will all be at one half our global emissions, and then we can move forward. What have you... <laughs> Christiana, what have you personally done to reduce your footprint? Well, I can tell you what I've done to increase my footprint. <laughs> Air travel. It is absolutely, absolutely the bane of my existence. Um, so I'll, I'll talk to that in, um, um, in a minute. What I have done, and honestly, um, all of us can, is I no longer eat any red meat. I haven't eaten red meat in eight years. Uh, the fact is, the, here's the good thing about things that address climate change, is that in general, and I can hardly think of any that do not, but measures either at a personal level or at a city or territory or state level or country level to address climate change have many, many, many other benefits. So not eating, in this case, not eating meat has a huge health benefit. And I'm certainly uh, you know, a witness to that. In addition to that we're helping um, the planet. So I have totally changed my diet. Um, I also, here's an interesting thing about my land transport. I used to live in London, and uh, 
I used, I was so delighted with the public transport. I love public transport. And I used all public transport. I actually figured out that if I got an electric vehicle in London, I would be emitting more than if I were using the public transport because electricity in London is becoming cleaner but still has coal in it, especially in the winter. And uh, conversely, when I moved back home to Costa Rica, another wonderful country, just like your own, much smaller. Uh, when I went home to Costa Rica, we have 100% renewable energy electricity. So in Costa Rica, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, come on, give it to Costa Rica. So, you know, ironically, in Costa Rica, it doesn't make sense to use public transport from an emissions perspective, because we import fossil fuel for transport. We have 100%, the energy mix, the electricity mix is 100% clean, but we're still importing stupid fossil fuels for transport until we can electrify all of that. So the reason why I'm telling you that is because one has to be careful about not simplifying things and saying, all right, you know, electric vehicle is the answer. It is the answer only if it is actually clean um, electricity. And otherwise, you're better off with insulating, you know, all kinds of efficiency, public transport, sharing transport, da da da, walking, biking, et cetera. Does that answer? Oh, but travel, international travel. Oh my God. So I am the worst offender at international travel um, for reasons that I have very much thought about and decided I'm going to do it because uh, I actually want to be speaking uh, everywhere. Now, here's the interesting thing that I've been thinking about with this virus that has everybody in collective hysteria. <laughs> what, if, what if this virus were to be with us long enough, I'm not sure how much that is, six months, eight months, one year, to actually prove to us that we don't have to do all the travel that we've been used to. What if every company, city, territory, corporation actually had much, much better telecommuting policies? We would emit less, we would have more time for our family, I think we would be more productive. Um, and on international travel, what if this crisis, in addition to selling extraordinary amounts of toilet paper, um, what if it would also send a signal to the information and technology sector for them to further de develop their video conferencing technologies so that we could have video conferencing that allowed us to participate remotely almost as if we were there in body. That is a technology that started about 10, eight years ago, eight or 10 years ago, and then kind of went, I don't know where it went, it just didn't further develop. But now is the moment to do that, right? And so let's be grateful for little miracles. Absolutely terrible, I'm not minimizing the deaths, which is a terrible thing that have, have occurred. But it may be giving us a signal that we have been doing way too much travel and that it's not necessary and that we can spur the economy and create more jobs and create more technology and keep us at home. Right. 
Now, I think we've got a couple of volunteers who will be roving around with microphones. Before we come to them, the last question. The federal government is uh, here um, sort of avoiding the word of using net emissions by 2050. All the state and territory governments are signed up to it. They're stressing that um, it's working on a technology blueprint that they think is more important because they can't look people in the eyes and tell them the cost of net zero by 2050. Sure, technology is part of the answer and you talk about that, but do you worry do you worry about the emphasis there of a technology roadmap over a commitment to talking about whether you can commit to zero emissions by 2050? Other than at a very, very large macro level, I don't think there is a country that can actually put a number to that yet. Because we don't really know how, you know, which technologies are still going to be developed that are going to take us there. So I see taking on a target for net zero by 2050 as more of A, a moral position, B, a direction, a completely clear direction of the economy. I don't blame them for saying, oh, we don't know how much it's going to cost because very likely nobody else does. That doesn't mean that you don't take the target that science demands and that you know is going to protect your people. And furthermore, it doesn't mean that you don't make any effort to start analyzing how much and how are we going to get there. Now, to the technology route. It's not a bad idea. We are going to need these technologies. But what the technology roadmap cannot do is just stay up there, you know, in, I don't know, in Nether Netherland. Technology roadmaps can be extraordinarily helpful if you can quantify and put deadlines to them. Then you can translate that into what are the emission reductions that will result from the implementation of those technologies. But you can't just say, we're going to use one technology and not quantify it. You have to quantify how much of each technology, by when is it going to be in the system. And then you can figure out what that displaces, and you can figure out the emission reduction. So there's nothing wrong with the technology, you know, leading with technology, as long as it is actually um, fundamental, as long as it is grounded in reality and in numbers because without that, there's no certainty for investment, and we need the investment. So without that, we need a very strong signal for the investments to occur, whether that is in current technologies or in the development of more technologies, but investors are not going to do it unless they have visibility of the long term. Okay, questions. Hands up. <laughs> How about, yes, sorry. Coming to you, microphone's coming to you. If you could state your name. Um, hello, my name's Kate Wiley. Thank you very much for all that you are doing for our planet, just to start with that. Um, um, you said before that you had your fingers, toes and hairs crossed that Australia would change its stance ahead of the COP25 in Glasgow, 26 I think in Glasgow later this year. What would you suggest Australians do as individuals to help make that happen? 
see, as the daughter of a revolutionary, <laughs> now, seriously speaking, is it not time after these bushfires that are, have, I think, seriously, right, marked the history of climate change policy in this country, is it not time to demonstrate in whatever way you choose to dramatic social intolerance for irresponsibility? Choose that, you know, at, on the streets, choose it. I'm going to let your imagination flow. But there's got to be a very clear message that is sent to all levels of government, although states and territories have already taken their net zero target, right? All of them. But there's got to be a very, very clear signal sent that irresponsibility with your lives and with the lives of your children is no longer something that is accepted by the Australian citizen, period. Um, so my name is Rachel Smith. How do we cut through the fossil fuel industry-driven communications campaign to undermine climate science so that the average citizen, so those in the middle of the bell curve, can access and understand factual and reliable information instead of the misleading sound bites that promote ignorance and the idea that climate change is about belief rather than facts? Is about what? Belief? belief. Rather than facts. Yeah, well, the belief piece I've already talked to, right? I mean, you can believe whatever you want, but climate is still on you. So, you know, earth, flat earth, gravity, that whole, that whole thing. Um, cut through the fossil uh, fuel campaign. Let, let me first take coal because I think they are uh, being more effective at that. Um, and I've heard so many arguments from them. My total favorite at the top of my, you know, favorite is coal will end poverty. <laughs> really? Well, if it could, you would have done it for a, a, over the past hundred years that you've been at it, right? So, I mean, that argument has got to go. The fact that in particular developing countries need coal in order to end poverty is exactly the opposite to the real to the real reality, because now we have fake news, we have real reality, I mean, it's a little complicated out there. But the real reality is um, that coal is only a burden on, uh, on poverty, because think about the bottom of the pyramid in any country are the ones who, A, have least caused climate change, they are the most vulnerable, they feel the effects more, and they have the less resources to do anything about it. So actually, Coal is an amplifier of poverty. That's the reality. So it does not end poverty. It amplifies poverty. The other, re the other um, argument that I've heard is, it's only coal that can produce jobs. Seriously? Well, you know, there are so many new technologies that are already e existing and that are actually growing. You cannot tell me that the coal industry is innovating It is all the renewable energy technologies plus all of the other clean technologies that are innovating and that are 
bringing online more industries, more jobs, more growth for any, um, for any population. Um, and the third piece um, that, uh, that I hear from the coal industry is um, that there's increasing demand for coal. Really? Well, in India, solar is hands down cheaper than coal. China can no longer tolerate coal domestically, so they're bringing their coal burning down domestically. Um, and sadly, they are beginning to finance coal in other Asian countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, because there's very little tolerance for coal in China. So they're beginning to export out, right? Um, by and large, honestly, there, I cannot think of one saving grace for coal. I'm pretty generous, honestly, and I, I, I work with everyone, but a while ago I drew the line on coal. There is no room for any more new coal, period. We need a little bit of gender balance in the questions. We've got a gentleman in the front here. Um, how can Could you, you please stand up? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yep. Sorry. I'm very impressed with all these written questions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go, go for it. Yeah. Um, how can we contain an optimistic attitude about the human race's future while chaos and misinformation take over? Okay, I'm so happy you asked that question. I was actually expecting it for you and it didn't come. All right, folks, here's my definition of optimism, okay? And I encourage you to think about this. There's a difference between optimism and celebration. When you achieve something that you want to achieve, you celebrate. Or in fact, I would say we don't celebrate enough. So number one, celebrate more. But that is fundamentally different from optimism. Optimism is not the result of having achieved something. Optimism is the mindset, the input, the strategy that you use to face a major challenge. Because if you don't, if you face a major challenge with fatalistic sense, you are bound to fail. Defeatism and fatalism is the guarantee of failure. Optimism is not a guarantee of success, but it sure helps to increase the probability. So, on climate change, because the consequences are so dire for the entire humankind, we cannot but be optimistic by choice, by decision, by intentionality. And we have to be stubborn about it. I call myself a stubborn optimist. And I invite all of you to become stubborn optimists. Because we will have huge barriers to overcome along this path. But none of them can be the reason to stop fighting for what we know is correct. We're almost out of time. I think we've got one more question here. Hi, my name's Barb. As someone who's been doing climate organising for about 15 years, we're always looking at 
you know, what's the low-hanging fruit or an easy kind of win? And so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, given that our government um, has the extractive industries in their pockets and that there's only about... No, it's the other way around. Yes, well, yeah. yeah. That there's only about 22 people that head up all the extractive in industries around the world, the main, the main kind of people that own these industries. Are they a good... Um, is, is that a good choice to focus your attention on or do you think they're going to just fall over as capitalism starts falling over or whatever, you know, as the system starts collapsing? Do we not bother putting our energy there in that, that sort of domain? Well, you know, sadly, if, if this were 2005 you know, or 10, I would say actually you can choose to focus on one or the other or the other strategy. Since this is 2020, we can't choose anymore. We have to do everything, okay, because we've run out of time. Um, having said that, I must say I am really impressed with large companies such as BHP, Rio Tinto, Qantas in this country, but also in so many other countries that have said, we can't do this anymore. Right? They're not, by the way, there's no altruism in these positions. They're not trying to save the planet, don't worry. Um, <laughs> it's all about business continuity, which is a good thing, okay? It's business continuity. That is a major force for change. And these extractive industries have totally understood that we have reached the final limit on extraction and that we have to start changing our mind from extraction to regeneration. Um, and, I mean, it's not, it's not that they are 100% there, but they're moving in that direction. And they have come out to say, okay, we are going to take a zero um, uh, net target by 2050. I bet you they have no idea how they're going to get there. That's the point, right? But they have taken that. If I were to say to you today, actually, I'm going to run a marathon, I have no idea how the heck I'm going to do that. But if I decide to do it, it then commits me to doing the training, the losing weight, to actually be able to do it. And that's the important thing. And there are more and more extractive industries or other large companies that are moving forward, especially the finance, right? Financial sector, look for major transformations in the finance sector this year. Because finally, stranded assets and risks or really that penny is really beginning to drop. So the combination of social pressure, uh, financial uh, uh, dearth, uh, no access to capital anymore, and here's the thing that really, I just totally love, how many oil and gas CEOs tell me, you know what we're really, really, really concerned about, Christiana? I go like, what? Like the future of the planet? No, no. <laughs> They're really concerned about attracting young talent. Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting because bright young man, minds do not want to waste their minds on industries that are basically belonging in the museum by now. So they're moving forward just because they want to attract bright minds. So here's to bright young people. Yeah. Uh. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you, one and all, for your company here this afternoon. I really want to thank you for being part of this discussion. Could you put your hands together too? Thanks.
Christiane, thank you.